Welcome to the Prophetic Collective Podcast. My name is Stacey and I'm so excited that you are joining me for season two of this podcast where we talk all things living a prophetic life. We have so many great conversations coming up, all purpose to equip and inspire you and to get you thinking about how God might be speaking to you and through you today. Yes, you. So let's go. Welcome to the Prophetic Collective Podcast Season 2. To kick off this brand new season, we are going on an 11 episode journey where we answer one of life's most defining questions. What is worship to you? Is it slow songs during a church service? Is it only for people who can sing? What if worship was more than a song and more than an experience within the four walls of the church? What if there was more to worship even than what we have experienced so far? What if we could unlock the fullness of worship and see it transform our everyday lives? These are the questions that Stacy tackles in her first book, Worship Is. These are also the questions we will tackle in this collection. And available to you today, as valued listeners of the Prophetic Collective, is a very special offer. Head to stacyhillier.com and purchase your very own copy of Worship Is using the code Prophetic Collective, all in caps, and you will get free express postage. Also available to podcast listeners is a free workbook that you can complete as you join in this Worship Is collection. Designed to be used with both the book and podcast collection, you can download your free copy at stacyhillier.com under the free resources tab. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to this, our final episode in our Worship Is collection and what a journey it has been and I'm so grateful to each and every one of you who has joined me so far we've talked about captioning my answer to what is worship to you worship is dot 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 we've gone from worship is medicine to worship is a weapon worship is freedom worship is stillness worship is numa worship is face to face worship is shoulder to shoulder Worship is hide and seek. Last week, we talked about worship is a mirror. And today, we finish up this collection with worship is both and. In other words, not either or. Worship is both and. And I'm excited to get into the content today. But I do want to ask you, have you changed how you have finished that sentence? I started off this whole collection and the book by talking to you about how I love the game on social media of caption this, where one of my friends puts up an image and normally it's humorous, funny, and then they say caption this and everyone has a go. And I absolutely love playing that game. And that is how the Lord directed me to write my first book, Worship Is. I wrote Worship Is in the middle of the page and then captioned what worship is to me in my life, in my experience of leading worship teams for about 20 years now. Also, what I believe the Bible says about worship is. And I also really wanted to tackle some of the misconceptions about how people would finish that sentence of what worship is to them. And that's why on the front of the book, uh, you'll see some people captioned it, worship is not for me. Well, worship is slow songs. Worship is religious. Worship is exclusive. Worship is for church only. And so I love that we've also 
tackled some of the misconceptions. So what I would love for you to do as we finish up this collection is think about, has your caption changed? Would you now underline some of your answers? Yes, I definitely believe that is what worship is. Would you scratch some out and start again? That was the process for me. As I studied what scripture said, it changed some of my answers. And that is what the Bible should do for us. It should define the boundaries of our beliefs, not our experience, but the word of God. So I love this quote from Gerald Van. He says, worship is not part of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. What a brilliant and a powerful quote. Let me read it to you again. Worship is not part of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. And by now you will have picked up that worship is not just what we sing in church on the weekend. Worship is the whole of our lives. And today we're going to particularly tackle the secular sacred divide, which biblically is not a divide that exists. Now, for me as a pastor, one of my favorite moments is when I meet new people, could be at one of the kids' sporting matches or sometimes in a cafe or getting my nails done or whatever, and people say, so what do you do? That's an important question in our society. People want to know what we are contributing to the world. And they say things like, what do you do for work? And it doesn't take long for us to move to that topic. And it normally comes straight up after you learn each other's names. Well, I don't have the luxury of making small talk with people because what I do for work tends to getting straight to the heart of the matter. It becomes make or break in our relationship pretty quick. Because when my answer is something like, I'm a pastor at a church and I work with all of the creatives and prophetic people, there's normally just crickets and awkward smiles and people slowly backing away. Now, for people who don't understand church life, it's easy for them to imagine that my everyday life of prayer, continuous Bible reading and memorization, fasting and abstinence, silence, contemplation and worship all the sweet day long with a symphony of angelic hosts bathing golden light when I let them know that I'm in ministry. That's what they might think my life looks like. But those of you who know me, and to perhaps have had some experience with people in ministry, no, not so much. My kids think that what I do all week is have coffees with people. That's what they think it means for me to be a pastor. Maybe occasionally I might write a song or a sermon. But one thing is for sure, it's much easier to imagine someone who is in what the world would call or even the church calls full-time ministry living all of their life in surrendered worship than it is to imagine the dad who works in IT or the young professional who just made junior partner at their law firm. That's much easier to imagine that if you work for the church, you can think of yourself in full-time ministry than if you work outside of the four walls of the church. Now, this is because the prevailing belief within our culture today is that there is and that there should be a divide between the secular and the sacred. Now, as I alluded to before, you will find no such division within the pages of our Bible. In fact, historically, modernism or the Enlightenment, which was uh, roughly during the 17th to the 19th centuries, saw a transition from living according to faith-based beliefs and biblical truth, which was the norm prior to this time, to an elevation of human reasoning, empiricism, and logic. 
So what happened is that modernism soon replaced Christianity as the dominant worldview as philosophers, particularly some uh, one of the most prominent was Immanuel Kant, who presented these radical views that divided our reality into two parts, dualism. The phenomenal, which is the world of fact and human reasoning, the things we can describe and explain. And then now menal, representing morality and spirituality. And he believed within this spiritual realm, there's no factual or logical basis that provides certainty. And therefore, these things should be kept private and outside of the public domain. In other words, the public domain is only for the things we can explain and understand. I mean, as a faith-based person, that's a wild concept, right? But this is actually the culture of the world we live in. Essentially, in this process, God was eliminated from the public arena and human reasoning replaced God in determining moral laws. And eventually, this led to an accepted societal norm that our jobs or our roles in the marketplace are completely separate from our lives of worship. So even if we just, for example, took the average number of hours that Australians work per week, let's take 2019 as an example, the average Australian worked 39 hours a week. That would be, if we submit to the culture of the world, 39 hours a week devoid of God. However, according to what scripture teaches, we can't divorce or separate the sacred and the secular. I love how author John Mark Comer describes this transition. He says the sacred secular divide is this erroneous idea that some things are sacred or scriptural and that they matter to God, but other things are secular or physical and by implication they don't matter to God. The problem with this widespread, ubiquitous, domineering, destructive way of thinking is that, well, by this definition, most of life is secular. Therefore, in the church, we often spend the majority of our time teaching people how to live the minority of their lives. That is a very powerful way to think about it. Author Pete Grieg, in his book, How to Hear God, says any paradigm that systematically divides sacred from secular, locking God in the church and the world in the pub, is a violation of the incarnation and fundamentally sub-Christian. I don't drive a Christian car, but I do try to drive as a Christian. In Christ, nothing in all creation remains secular but sin. For as 1 Corinthians 10.26, the Apostle Paul tells us, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Now, I want us to pause for a moment right here because I've just dropped some fairly heavy content on you and I want us to process. I want us to pause and to just pray, to converse, to talk with God about what we've just heard before we unpack this a little bit more. So perhaps you just want to open your hands before the Lord if you're not driving or if you're on the treadmill, that's okay. Just take a few deep breaths. Where in the so-called secular world can I see God at work right now? Just take a moment to think about that. Where in the secular world can I see God at work right now? Remembering that biblically we don't believe in the sacred secular divide. 
So God is all over what we term secular. So where can I see God at work in that arena right now? Secondly, I want you to reflect on this. Is there a non-Christian voice through which God might be speaking to me right now? Is there in my life a non-Christian voice through which God might be speaking to me? You see, if we live by this sacred secular divide and we believe that we can only hear from God within the church, prophetic people, hear me here. If we believe we can only hear and see God through Christian behavior, through what Christians are doing inside the four walls of the church, we have locked God inside of the church and we cannot afford to do that. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote to one of the most secular societies of the day in a scripture we've already discussed before, Romans 12.1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, as I mentioned, this isn't the first time we've visited these verses together, but it is one of the most formative in how we would live our lives as worshippers and followers of Christ. And Paul is speaking about the relationship between Christian belief and then how we practice our beliefs. In other words, he's speaking to us of a life with no secular sacred divide, rather a life that is congruent all the way through, no matter where we are. And he describes a life lived this way as spiritual worship. In other words, how we apply our faith in the secular is as important in our worship life as how we apply our Christian beliefs inside the church. In fact, I would argue it's more important how Christ-like we are outside the four walls of the church in terms of fulfilling the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say bring all nations to the church. It says go and make disciples of all nations. Now, in speaking of our bodies as living sacrifices in this scripture, Paul's addressing our whole life and activities, not just our physical bodies. The problem is, I don't know if you've noticed this, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep on getting off the altar. And our lives are worshipped to God when we continually Keep putting ourselves back on the altar, laying down our will, laying down our little kingdom for his will and his kingdom. And this kind of life offered in worship is holy and pleasing to God. It is sacred service. And it is clear that to Paul and also to us as Christians today, that all of our life can be an act of worship and service to God. Let's look at some other passages where Paul addresses this. 1 Corinthians 10 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Colossians 3 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, from the beginning, God intended even our work lives to be worshipped. That place you spend 39 hours plus every week. In Genesis 2.15, 
we read that immediately following the creation of man, I'm quoting here, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And this word work, where it says, go work it, work it, baby, work it, Adam, is the word abad. And its literal meaning is worship. So let's catch the significance of this. Prior to the fall, prior to sin entering the world, Adam was placed in paradise and given the task of working and his work was his worship. He didn't have a compartmentalized life that was either work or worship. Adam's work was his worship. And God's intention is that we replicate, we redeem, we recapture life before the fall. It wasn't either or, it was both and. And he was also, Adam, given the task of keeping the garden. And this is the word samar, which means to guard, to care for, to secure something. Let's put this together. Adam's worship was guarding, caring for, and taking care of the property in trust and securing the territory God had assigned to him. This was the original original design for the work of our hands. And when we approach our work this way today, we restore Edom. We bring kingdom to earth. So I hope you are seeing that woven throughout every episode we've talked about so far, that worship is the vehicle that will bring kingdom to earth. But you and I, we are the vessels. Worship is the vehicle. You and I are the vessels. Author Daniel Block puts it this way, to be human is to work and to work is worship. Work is the principal act of worship to which human beings are called. So think for a moment, what territory or property and trust have you been given to steward as an act of worship? Do you have children? They are yours to steward as worship. Are you married? This relationship is yours to cultivate and to work as an act of worship, to guard it. Do you work in an architectural firm? This is your garden to care for and to secure, not out of obligation and not devoid of God, but as an act of worship. It's not a place where you hide your love for God or the fact that you go to church. Instead, as a holistic spiritual being, we worship by how we approach what we have been entrusted with and we take our everyday ordinary lives, as the message paraphrases Romans 12.1, our sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and we place it before God as an offering. Jesus taught us himself in Matthew 22.37, Love the Lord your God with every passion of your heart, with all the energy of your being, and with every thought that is within you. That's the Passion Translation. Now, this is not the language of a compartmentalized, secular, sacred, divided life. God never intended to only be a small part of your life. That's a very Western way to think. He wants to bring health, wisdom, revelation, and light to every single part of who you are. And he can only do that when we give him access to every part of us. You see, God's kingdom is not a segmented, partially effective kingdom. This is a big statement, but when the Holy Spirit whispered this to me, it was such a moment of surrender for me. He either fully reigns in our life or he doesn't reign at all. 
He either has full reign in every area of your life or by definition, he does not reign in your life at all. I have noticed in journeying life, uh, growing up in the church most of my life, that nothing is more detrimental to God's reputation than hypocritical Christianity. I'm talking about a life that is not congruent or a mouth that professes one message and yet acts out of another ruling spirit that presides within the heart. We don't act out of what comes out of our mouth. We behave out of what we believe in our hearts and in our minds. And that's why we need to continue to commit to developing our secret place, our hide and our seek worship life, to keep beholding and becoming so that the rest of our life flows from this well. Otherwise, we are unable to represent God well outside the four walls of the church. I believe we're living in a time and a season as prophetic people as worshippers of God, where we can no longer hide in the safety of our church buildings or homes, professing, singing our love for God, and it not affect how we approach our shopping in the supermarket, loving our neighbor, or how we approach our work lives. Because when we segment these things, we submit to the culture of the world that tells us there is no place for your faith in the secular. But God's mandate for us as worshippers is that the sacred kingdom of God rules the secular, not the other way around. It's not that the kingdom of this world would infiltrate the kingdom of the church or God's kingdom. It's that God's kingdom would infiltrate the culture of the world carried by his sons and daughters. And you see, the, t- the scales are tipped as we each make this choice in our personal life. So our work is our worship. Our parenthood is our worship. How we do friendship is worship. How we practice the law or teach our students, that's our worship. You see, true worship is expressed primarily in everyday conduct. Catch that. True worship is expressed primarily for every single one of us in everyday conduct. You will have heard me say this before. If you are a full-time Christian, you are in full-time ministry. That's not just reserved for those of us who work at church. So I hope and pray that you're a full-time Christian and not part-time. Although I have to admit, sometimes when I take the netball court, maybe I'm not so Christian on that. But I'm working on it, people. I'm working on being Romans 12.1 on the netball court. But yes, if we are a full-time Christian, we are in full-time ministry. And most of our lives are lived outside the four walls of the church. So if we divide and compartmentalize our worship of God to what we do at church alone, we actually prevent him from being involved in most of our lives. And so we must understand that biblically, it's never either or, it's both and, it's all of, it's the whole of our lives. It's every part of us postured in worship to our king, even when we're playing wing defense or having a killer game at goal attack. Yes, I'm challenged, convicted. Thank you, Holy Spirit. (laughs) This is kingdom come to earth. Worship is both and. Now, I'm going to talk for a moment about the book of Ezekiel because it records a series of prophetic messages from a man who was both a priest and a prophet. And Ezekiel was a prophet to those who were in exile in Babylon. And this was at one of the most critical times in the history of Israel. He was an exile himself prophesying to other exiles. And it was during this time of upheaval and trauma that Jerusalem and the temple were captured and destroyed. 
And towards the end of his book of prophecies, Ezekiel is led by an angelic being on a visionary tour of a restored and the new temple, which would be rebuilt once God had gathered his exiles back together to vindicate them. That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Like an angel taking you on a visual, visual virtual tour. Pretty cool. Now, in a scripture that we've already talked about, Ezekiel's brought to the entrance of the temple and shown a stream of water flowing out from underneath the threshold. And as he walks by the water with his guide, he notices that the stream becomes a river of significant depth. He observes that the water flowing from the temple gives life and renewal everywhere it flows. And this prophetic vision is significant given that there were actually no natural springs or sources of water. This stream was clearly supernatural in origin. And importantly, it grew deeper the further it flowed outside of the four walls of the temple. I read one commentator who summarized the vision this way. This is surely a picture of the power of God's presence in his temple and among his people. It affects everything for good. In John 7, 38 to 39, perhaps even Jesus had Ezekiel's vision in mind when he said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit. Now we know that you and I house the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are living, breathing, walking sources of living water. And the further outside of the church we venture, the more our living water is needed. And God's provision for us is that the depth will grow as we go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded us. And in the same way that this angel called Ezekiel's attention to the rapidly increasing stream by asking him, Son of man, have you seen this? I believe the Spirit of God is asking us, do we have eyes to see what God is doing at this time? Prophet Isaiah also asked that question. It's not enough for us to come to church shoulder to shoulder or to our private place of hide and seek where we meet with God face to face and just drink the living water. This is a good foundation, but God has set us on a mission. He has given us an assignment here on earth and we risk becoming like Tiddalik the frog if we hold all of that living water inside while people are dying of thirst around us. Now, if I lost you there for a moment when I talked about Tiddalik the frog, stay with me because I'm going to describe a, a dream time story that I was taught in primary school about Tiddalik. He's an Aboriginal dream time character and this story was passed down through Indigenous generations to ensure that Aboriginal spiritual beliefs about existence were transferred from one generation to another. Now, whilst we believe clearly some very different things spiritually than Indigenous Australians, what is familiar here is that we were also instructed in Deuteronomy 11.18 that we were to pass words of instruction to future generations. And this was a similar practice for the Australian Aborigines. Back to the largest frog in the world, Tiddalik. One morning, this frog, the story goes, woke up very thirsty, hopped his way to the local billabong and drank the entire water supply, drained it. 
The story then goes on to describe that other Aussie animals started to wake and head for their morning sip and they found the water all dried up. Now, knowing who had taken all of the water because of his size, which gave it away, the echidna, the kookaburra, the kangaroo and the emu came up with the genius plan of trying to make this giant frog titalic laugh to get him to let all of the water out. But nothing worked until finally the snake came and tied himself up in knots, which the larger-than-life frog found amusing. Soon, the water came gushing forth for others to drink as Tiddalik's chuckle turned into a full belly laugh as the snake continued to tie itself in knots as a comedy act. Interesting little story, right? Random, even. But one day, I prayed in the quiet of our dark church. I knelt at the altar all on my own. And I asked God, what are you doing and saying in your church? And this is the story he reminded me of from, you know, grade two, three or four. I haven't thought about it in years. And I had to admit that I questioned God. What on earth are you saying? Why are you showing me this? And then he reminded me of Ezekiel's vision. Then he reminded me of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And it all began to make sense. Now think about this before I continue to explain and unpack this revelation. If I had gone, you know what, that's from the secular world. I can't hear God in that story. I would have missed the revelation I'm about to share with you. But because I'm growing in my understanding, there's no such thing as sacred and secular. God is Lord of it all. Even his children and indigenous cultures that don't call him Lord, he's still their good father. And if he wants to speak through their cultures and their traditions, then I'm going to let him. Here's what he said to me. Our world desperately needs the living water we have inside of us that Jesus spoke of in John 4, 13 to 15. Let me read it to you. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, As true worshippers of our God, we have a spring of water inside of us that isn't just for private consumption. Here's what he showed me at that altar. It's meant to be a spring for others, a spring that may start as a nervous trickle. But as we learn to open our mouth wide and let out our testimony of what God has done in our lives, it soon becomes a torrent, a river that brings life and healing to everybody we encounter. And the further out of the church we venture, the deeper and more effective it becomes because the thirstier they are. And there have been so many times the Lord showed me when I have personally become a fat frog, just concerning myself with me, myself and I, what am I getting from God in my worship life? What am I getting out of church? What am I getting out of the Bible? And I admit there are seasons when we need to get back to the basics of our intimacy with God. But Jesus has commissioned us in Matthew 5.13. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Notice he did not say, you are the salt of the church. In fact, I don't know about you, I don't mind a little shake of salt. But there is nothing worse than when you go to season your poached eggs and too much comes out in one spot, like the lid comes off and the whole thing pours out in one spot. You can't eat it. It's inedible. 
Salt is only good for flavor when it's evenly distributed across your meal. And yet we, the church, love to pile ourselves up in one little corner within the safety of our own little communities and the thirsty can't approach us. But when we get outside the four walls into our workplaces, our communities, into the land that God has given us to steward, to Abad and Salem, our saltiness should make people thirsty. Salt will make you thirsty. And thirsty people soon look to find a water source. And guess what? A salty person that has saturated, and I don't mean like, whoa, she's salty. I mean biblically, (laughs) when we are salt and light. If we are saturated and immersed in a lifestyle of worship, we are a spring of life and living water to everyone around us. You can be a spring of life at the board table. You can be a spring of life at the school kiss and drop. You can be a spring of life in the grandstand. It's not either or, it's both and. In Revelation 22, 1-5, John the Revelator, who before he was ever John the Revelator, he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, had a visionary encounter about a source of water. Just like Ezekiel, he was shown by an angel, a river that flowed from the throne of God in the New Jerusalem. Let me read how he described it. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the land through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Once again, the river of life will flow. There will be healing for the nations, and we will all worship face to face. In Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This passage describes you and I being immersed, plunged, saturated, dripping with the Holy Spirit. Think about a dry sponge. When you put it in water and you pick it up and it's got water dripping off it, this is what it is to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. And this immersion has a purpose to equip us to leave the safety of our Christian and personal worship communities, to get outside of the temple, as Galatians 5 says, staying step by step with the Spirit, carrying the river of life out of our personal little Edens so that more of the earth will be restored to its original design. This is us living in action indeed. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And throughout this series, I pray that you would have picked up that this has been the vision the picture and the purpose that has kept me, that has held me, that has helped me to stand firm when I have wanted to fall or to run away. I've shared many personal stories throughout this collection of times where I could have given up, 
But I have a vision that one day Eden will be restored in all its fullness and what a glorious day it will be. Meanwhile, my choice is I will spend my life preparing for eternity by bringing as much of it here on earth as I can. And I will do this by continuing to give my life to him in worship. Every part of it, all of it, is nothing he can't have. And so here is something you and I must consider. Will this river that Ezekiel and John have seen in a moment of worship flow out from the temple or from God's throne in and of itself? Or is God inviting you and I to literally walk it out into the marketplace, the community and the world? You know, I'm sure that God could do this supernaturally. But as both a student of history and the word of God, I see more evidence that God wants to use us to fulfill his dream. That Habakkuk 2.14 describes that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And you and I, we're the water sources. You see, worship isn't only about our own personal healing, our breakthrough, our individual freedom, our isolated church community, our moment of stillness, our face-to-face encounter, or even our hide-and-seek. Worship is a place to be equipped and filled to overflow with the living water so that we fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. We're not designed just to fill the church. We are designed to fill the earth and it's not either or it is both and and that right there concludes this worship is collection if you did download our workbook and remember it's not too late you can just jump on the website it's under free resources tab some of the things we're asking you to do or inviting you to do is things like praying I'm open to being led by your Holy Spirit even to uncomfortable places mold me make me who you need me to be And then reflecting on things like worship's not part of the Christian life, it is the Christian life. And then to reflect honestly and be specific of how much of your life you've given Jesus reign over. We invite you to reflect on the secular and sacred divide and how you feel. Do you have boldness to share Jesus and be the same in your workplace as you are at church? And then to journal a prayer asking for boldness. We talk about, do you have a vision for how the church could affect the world in positive ways? Dream with God and write it down. We discuss the quote, true worship is expressed primarily in everyday conduct. So assess your everyday conduct. Is it being lived as appropriate worship? And then some further reflection to write a prayer of fresh surrender to God. Then we invite you to look at Ezekiel 47, to read the passage, to read Revelation 22, and to journal or draw what the Holy Spirit shows you as you capture his vision for the living water flowing out of the church. We've also put a meditation in there for you, a scriptural meditation that I'm sure you will enjoy. But once again, I want to thank you for joining me for this collection. Next week on the podcast, we kick off a new collection that I'm super excited about, which is spiritual practices. We're going to be looking at things like Lectio Divina, um, Examine, Breath Prayers, The Daily Office, um, Imagining with God, Ignatian Meditation. It's going to be a five-week collection. And every time I teach this or share this with people in my world, They find new depths in God. And in fact, I've got um, part of my team right now doing a 21-day Lectio Divina that I've had the opportunity to put together. 
And so I just know you're going to be so blessed by this next collection and you are going to fall more in love with Jesus, more in love with his word, and you're going to be transformed from the inside out because that is what the word is purposed to do when we posture ourselves correctly in front of the scriptures. So I'd love to hear from you. Please rate and review this podcast because it helps us to reach more people. And I truly believe that the Bible teaches us that all of us are purposed and empowered to live a prophetic life. And we cannot live a prophetic life unless we are living a worshiping life. And that's what this entire collection has been about. I pray you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed presenting it to you. And I want to pray for you today before we finish up. So Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you call us to be your worshippers, that you're a God who wants to live in relationship with us. You want us to spend time with you. You love the sound of our voice. You're not bothered by us. You're not inconvenienced by us. We're not burdening you. You love it when we sing, when we pray, when we pour out our heart to you, when we sit in your presence, making ourselves more aware of who you are, it delights your heart. Thank you for being a God who loves our presence as much, if not more, than we love yours. I am praying, Jesus, this book, Worship Is, this collection of podcasts is my offering to you, is my worship to you. I thank you for the privilege of sharing from your word, which has changed my life. I thank you for everything you have taught me through your word, for every experience that you have brought me through that I have shared from in this collection. I turn it all back to glory and all back to praise to you. I invite you to take this to whatever ears you need to hear it, that you would put that book in whatever hands need to receive fresh revelation of who you are in their life that it would all be for your glory. I submit it to you once again. This is my act of spiritual worship to you. This is my act of obedience to you. And I pray what John the Baptist prayed, more of you and less of me. I pray that as people have listened to your scriptures being unpacked to just one woman's small corner of revelation of what you've done in her life, that they would be inspired, invited to the more of God. I pray that they would believe that they are invited to -to face-to-face encounters like Moses. I pray that they would hear that they can be set free just like this bound up girl is growing in her freedom. I pray that they would hear that worship rewires us holistically, that worship is our medicine. I pray we would grow in our revelation, that we are a mirror that is meant to reflect your glory, not the culture around us. I pray we would no longer divide the secular and the sacred, but let this whole earth become like heaven and let it be kingdom for your glory, Jesus. I pray we would be a people, a prophetic people, a prophetic army who spend more time hiding away and seeking your face through your scriptures and in prayer than who seek to hold a microphone and prophesy to multitudes. Let us first be the priesthood that ministered to you, Jesus. And I thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. I thank you for purchasing my freedom and my salvation. I thank you for all you have done. I thank you that when you return to our loving Father who made a way to overcome our sin, that you gave us the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Holy Spirit, you are my teacher, my comforter. 
You are my parakletos. And I thank you for every listener that they will be, be spending their lives caught up in your presence, being changed, never feeling alone. I pray for any person who feels isolated and alone under the sound of my voice right now. Holy Spirit, I ask you to go close to them. And I pray all of these things humbly with a sober awareness that you are my king, my savior, my redeemer, my friend, my rock, my salvation before me, behind me, all around me. You have a plan for every person listening today. And I praise you for they are fearfully and wonderfully made. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much for listening. I really felt God's presence was praying there. I'm overwhelmed by his goodness once again in my life. I pray you're overwhelmed by his goodness in yours. I love you and I will talk to you again next week for our brand new collection on spiritual practices. Bye. Did you know that Stacy also has a guided prayer podcast? Contemplative prayer is a rich, deep and rewarding way to encounter Jesus and the scriptures. With instrumental scores written to empower your encounters with Jesus, these prayers are a chance to be still and to step out of the hustle of today's fast-paced world. Available wherever you get your podcasts by searching Guided Prayers with Stacey Hillier.